0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Coghurtz. I'm your host Chetan. I'm Rakshita. Today's episode is a very special one. Why is it so, you may
1: ask? Today we have with us a very, very special guest and also a very first guest on the podcast. He's none other than Arturo Deza.
0: Arturo, if you jump onto his Twitter profile, you could see the description of a robot ophthalmologist. And throughout the course of this interview, we hope to get a better sense of his vision in research.
1: Fun intended. So let us give a quick recap of the academic background of Arturo before we proceed with the fun talks. He's currently a postdoc research associate at the Center for Brains, Minds and Machines at MIT. Before this, he was a postdoc fellow at Harvard University and has a PhD in Dynamical Neuroscience from UC Santa Barbara.
0: Also, I first encountered Arturo during his talk on perceptual invariance in humans and machines at the CBMM summer schools, and you guys should definitely check it out. The link for that will be attached
2: in the description.
1: So, Arturo, hi. Welcome to talk Hi, how are you
2: guys? How are you guys? Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. And uh, my name is Arturo, you know, as we <laughs> talked earlier, and uh, it's, uh, it's really an honor to be here, be the "Quote, first guest know you guys also you know face to face and uh virtually and, and and just share some experiences i guess and uh which seems like is the purpose of this podcast that i'm i'm always happy to talk about you know either science or non-science stuff because i think uh you know the upcoming generations you know need a lot of uh, I don't know. Like, need to know there's people working on interesting projects and stuff like that. So.
0: Yeah, we agree with you. That is why we wanted to go ahead with this concept of pop sci or like popular science, mm-hmm. and which is yeah. also a reason why we wanted to, you know, go ahead with this thing called Coghertz. But
1: so before we start with our interview, do you have any hints why we named uh, Coghertz?
2: Why you guys named it Coghertz? Um, Something like cognitive frequency, maybe something like that. perfect Hertz for frequency. Perfect.
1: Yes, absolutely.
2: But I don't know why. Also, when I imagine coghertz, I imagine a hummingbird, for some reason.
0: Yeah. So, so. Uh, that would be like a, a association because uh, because of our logo, uh, those are hummingbirds. Oh, okay. And yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Uh, but mostly, it's a we talk about topics <laughs> related to cognition, and you're hearing it, oh. so
2: hurts. So yeah. Oh, oh. that makes sense. Yeah. that makes
0: sense that makes sense cool. so um, Mr. Uh, Robot Ophthalmologist do yes, you yes, think that uh, there's a symmetrical relationship between how like research in computer vision and human vision could evolve with each other or do you think there's an asymmetrical relationship or it's non-symbiotic could computer vision ever help us understand the
2: quote-unquote
0: dark realms of cognition
2: Yeah, I I mean, I think so. I think something too that, even I feel like I should know the answer, but I don't really fully understand is like, what is the difference between perception and cognition? I think cognition is probably understanding and juggling the percept in like a higher level from that. Um, Most of my work is about visual perception than visual cognition. But in any case, I think I do think that, um, and part of the whole reason why I started doing research in this in this field was I thought the vision science and computer vision or well human vision and computer vision were like almost like two divorced fields you know and I thought it was kind of sad when I started in this like 10 15 or something like years ago or maybe not that maybe maybe 12 years ago it was already very mature but when I read the papers I would notice that vision like started as like one thing and it was the psychologists and the biologists and the computer science people and everyone just muffled together trying to just understand how perception work, either in a human, a machine, or, any, or anywhere in between, you know, and then eventually just kind of <clears throat> diverged. And then somewhat ironically, when I was deciding where to, or what programs to do for graduate school, I said, I think I should try to aim for um, something that I, I wasn't very familiar with, which was like the neuroscience psychology side of things. And I juggled I and went for, I went for, I, I betted towards dynamical neuroscience where I had some like visual science and vision science psychophysics, and stuff like that in California and complimented, complimented my engineering background that when I used to read a lot of the papers at the end of um, undergrad, most of the engineers were getting inspiration from the psychologists. And I kind of thought at that time, maybe because I wanted to satisfy my ego or something, I was like, oh, it'd be super cool to, work on an idea now that 30 years in the future, someone would be like, Dr. Deza discovered this, you know, and, and like, sure, I wouldn't be the popular guy now, but maybe like 20 years ahead. Um, now, I think it's a different panorama, which somewhat ironically, I think that's, that gap has reduced and been accelerated, but I do think that the fields are converging a bit more, and now, as you said, there's this symbiosis where where before it was um, neuroscience-inspired AI, I feel like now, even in vision, we see this trend. There's very little groups in the world that work on this, but how to use AI to understand something um, in the brain and in vision too, like how do we know what's happening in V2 or V4 or IT that people don't know. And now you see these models that, these computer vision models that perform really well and you can kind of reverse engineer things, you know? So I think that's already happening. And it's not that popular, but it's very interesting. So, yeah.
0: So when you initially started out, was your interest Mm -hmm. because of computer vision and uh, uh, you wanted to translate into human vision or was the initial kernel, like the seed of interest of human vision or then you translated towards computer
2: Uh, vision? I'm actually not sure. I I wish I knew. And I always juggle with, I don't really know. I feel like I, for example, it's funny, sometimes I've interviewed either at different companies or like in the CV, it's like PhD in neuroscience, but I feel like I'm like a closeted engineer, you know? Deep inside, I think like an engineer. Yeah. Um, I When I approach a problem, it's very popular and common in in, the, um, in, psychology and neuroscience to kind of think like, what's the hypothesis and the idea you want to test? And mm-hmm. is it A or B? And how do you tweak something to know if it the, the causal factor is A or B? And sometimes for me, and I would get judged a lot and. Made fun of in a playful way not really in a mean way but i would just be like let's just let's just try whatever and see what happens and maybe you'll find something funny or bizarre or unexpected and sometimes you need a bit of that um sometimes you do need a bit of the other thing which is at least kind of come up with some sort of expected result and see what happens but i think we shouldn't be afraid to just try wacky ideas and and see Um, what the outcome is so I don't really know what my seed was I do know that at some point I juggled between vision and graphics and I think that was interesting too because vision or like computer vision is like teaching the machine how to see and graphics is like how do you even render the world you know it's almost like the inverse problem of vision understanding versus generating something like that so Maybe with my art artistic background in high school, I was like maybe generating is cool, but then I said understanding perception and how people just perceive and stuff like that is I don't know. It's like another thing, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So uh, Chitain, you had a question? Yeah, yeah you spoke yeah. about uh, two things. One thing was yeah. uh, about how sometimes it's good to just go ahead with wacky ideas, and yeah. uh, then you also spoke about your artistic side. And fifty yeah. percent of arturo is art. <laughs> Which also leads me yeah. to a question. <laughs> Till what extent do you think your creativity is essential for research pursuits? Like, we are asking this oh. because while going through a profile, we found your Etsy and we found a lot of beautiful oh. art under the style Thanks. of artificial expressionism. So, yeah. where did this come from? And is there some kind of re- uh, relationship between these wacky ideas, you say, and yeah. uh, following a creative pursuit?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think they go hand in hand. I actually gave an interview the other day um, with a former professor who asked me this, and he's like, do you think that even science and art are so different or common? And I'm like, I think many people think they're different. Oh, I think we're still there. Okay, we didn't leave each other. But, um, but I think many people don't see that there is a commonality in terms of studying other artists who influence you, like a scientist, you know, like you, you get, read other research papers, like, oh, this idea by I remember when I was in an undergrad, like Torralba is super cool, by Simoncelli is super cool, you know? And without knowing it, you read these papers and they influence your own style as a researcher too. So I feel like in, in art that happens as well. And I do think that in science, you do have to be creative. You know, you, there, there's an interesting dissociation that when I talk with artistic, or even scientists, they tell me something like, you there know, there's, there's a fine line between being a painter and being an artist, you know? someone who can paint maybe can like copy something and and do it, you know, but the artist has to express, you know, I think in scientists, it's like similar, maybe I don't know, like what what the best analogy would be like, uh, the the programmer versus a computer scientist, you know, there's exceptional computer scientists who don't know how to program, you know, some weird stuff like that. So uh, these things, they would seem very unrelated, but I think they are. And for me, the pursuit of art has just kind of been a self um, exploratory experience, I guess, of just knowing what I like, how I see and perceive the world. And also something interesting that maybe, I don't know what to be happens in science, but sometimes I'll finish a painting uh, and and I don't know what the title was or what I was feeling at the moment, but then like a week later passes or the next day, sometimes even a month and I'm like, oh, this is what I was trying to paint or do, you know? And just like letting go, Maybe in science, that's not that common, but you do need the, the phases of creativity and thinking about, you know, what's going to be my next project versus the act of coding the project or writing the report, you know, so there's, they're not that different. I think many people do think that they are, but I think everyone has like an inner scientist and artist that they're not aware of, you know, and yeah. there's too many uh, putting people in a box stuck, you know you can only be a scientist yeah your stuff like that you know
1: but yeah because uh even like i also paint so i've also like experienced that uh whatever i've painted like while i was painting that experience has also translated in whatever research i am doing so like i'm able to express myself i I always see like research as a canvas like the way you can paint by using like actual paintings and colors it's the same way you can like actually translate into science and research yeah yeah. I
2: quite agree with yeah that. yeah yeah no that, that's true and the other thing too is i i also find it interesting that it becomes this process both painting and and science where the more you take a step like the empty canvas which is fully is like an it's like a chessboard with no moves you know the, mo- the moment you start doing an experiment or start painting like the canvas it's like you, you reduce the whole search space of what the idea is You know, and I think something also that is not that well talked about, but is very interesting is when do you know when the research project or the paper or the painting is done, you know, especially in abstract art, like when do you know, you say like, this is done, like what does it mean for it to be done? Is it that the concept is clear, that the idea is obvious, maybe there's something that's not fully resolved in the painting or the paper, whether the technique, the brushstroke, you know, stuff like that. When do you sign it like I don't know these are all small things that they're really kind of there's this bizarre mapping that I don't know how it works, but the, 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 it's not so obvious, but it's there, you know. Oh,
1: yeah. So like yeah so um, we thoroughly enjoyed um, reading your work on uh, peripheral vision and oh, the uh, similarities between computer vision and human vision that your work draws upon is quite fascinating. So like um, your latest paper, um, finding biological uh, plausibility for adversarially robust features by a metameric task um, Mm -hmm. is along that direction. So uh, before that, but we we just want to ask you, like, could you help our listeners understand what exactly is metamerism and how it is incorporated in the paper?
2: Yeah, so metamerism is something I've really liked a lot uh, trying to study since the end of grad school. And it's this concept that was discovered a long time ago, first for color, then for other type of phenomena in general that has to do with uh, the property or the phenomenon where there's two physically different signals. So imagine two vectors or two signals, whatever, however you want to represent them, they're different, but perceptually in your mind, they like map to the same point. So So suppose you have like, if you want to think this purely mathematically, you have X1, X2, X1 and X2 is different. In fact, you want X1, X2 to be as different as possible given some metric, but when you run both of them through F, F being, for example, the brain or any perceptual system, they map to the same point. So they both map to like Y or something like that in very loose terms and non-mathematical terms is you have two different uh, things and you think they're the same um, and you don't realize they're different. I think that's kind of the interesting thing as well. So in the paper, the way we approach this too is trying to study why there's different information, either both lost in the periphery, but also how information is represented in the periphery, and also how that potentially translates to adversarial robustness in machines. Because I think there's, the the main motivation of this paper, uh, side tangent to metamerism, but that's also very important, is that uh, there's this theory in vision science that uh, I think is kind of been accepted as complete, and that that that's it. Which is foveal vision, which is your center of gaze where you look at, is the only most important thing in like the visual system. That's where you do object recognition, and you know to a certain point, that's you know kind of true. And peripheral vision, which is the, all the blurry stuff in the periphery, that you, everything that's outside your center of gaze is kind of pointless. It's like the the not even the supporting actor. It's kind of like like a, what's the word like a, like an extra, you know. It's impoverished foveal vision. It only serves you to maybe tell you where to make your next saccade and, and know where an object is in search. And uh, I didn't really buy that fully. I, I actually think that there's, there could be a representational goal of peripheral vision. Um, and, uh, and I don't know, the, the main, mainly the arguments have been saying that peripheral vision Like you don't see everything in HD in your retina and and further along the ventral seam just because your brain has to be efficient with processing information. And I think that's also true. It doesn't have to be a dichotomy, but I think there's also probably a reason why, especially in the periphery, there's been ideas that support that the way you represent information is almost like a a texture. So you're essentially just kind of scramble. I don't know if the word is scrambling it, but you represent it like if it was distorted. But yeah, Chitan, you had you had a you had an interesting question there or, or point. Yeah.
0: So um you said the way we are looking in a peripheral is completely yeah. like it's different, it's textured where in comparison to like a central like fixation. Yeah. Do you think yeah. information is encoded in a different format when we are doing peripheral vision with respect to central vision, or is it the same encoding, but it is the rep- representation inside our brains or mind that is different?
2: oh um i i actually don't know that's a very good point i actually don't know they i I know there's a subtlety in that argument i'm really not sure i don't think that like the brain is is like generating a metamer or something like that i i'm I, i think what i think is probably going on is um that the receptive fields are like so big and and they change and somehow the type of processing is different for who knows why i mean potentially one reason also has to do with the um i don't know there's there's arguments that doesn't have to do with texture but like you can see uh better at night in peripheral vision for example Uh, you can estimate motion better with peripheral vision than versus uh, foveal i believe so the texture thing is interesting because i don't think that you know you're like consciously want to like scramble the information but that somehow it's maybe a byproduct of the physiology or however information is being computed in the, the i guess in the in the peripheral area or regions that are receiving all that information. Um, it's funny, like I'm not a neurophysiologist to know all this, but from what I've read, it seems like that's kind of what's going on. And there's interesting experiments that show this too. So what I thought from reading these works um, that were pioneered by Rosenholtz and Simoncelli like a decade ago, I would say, hmm, it would be cool to kind of see if you could put this in a machine somehow and then see if it gives it some sort of uh, benefit So there were some uh, computational costs or limits to do that. So instead of doing that, we kind of did this reverse engineering experiment where we synthesized different stimuli from a model, an adversary-trained network, a non-adversary-trained network. And we essentially wanted to test in humans how these different type of stimuli um, change your sensitivity as you move, move them away from your center of gaze. And what we found is kind of like a necessary but not sufficient condition to say that it's possible that the representations that are learned in an adversary-robust machine that is not sensitive to these like small noises, we can talk about adversarial images in a bit. Um, is very similar to the type of computations that happen in the periphery. So if that's the case, that could also like the deeper significance of the paper, besides the psychophysics, is suggesting that maybe the periphery is helping you build invariance of what an object is. So for example, when I look at this, you know, uh, coffee cup. I'm not only looking at it straight ahead but you know I'm making eye movements around it maybe before I didn't know where it was. So I kind of have a peripheral template of it and then I make a fixation and it's there. So the fact by virtue of the object having this maybe variable resolution or variable representation, I'm not always sampling like a single point and I have like this, this narrow distribution but I have something that's very wide, right? So it's implicitly giving me invariance. And I think that idea is what really liked the, the engineers a lot. And, and they were like, oh, maybe we, we, we were thinking wrong about peripheral vision. And maybe like the story is like incomplete too. That, that's what I believe. And maybe I'm I'm biased to like find something that maybe is not there, you know. But um, but that's kind of what the experiment suggests. And um and it's very tricky too, because if it wasn't for adversarial stimuli, it's very hard to prove that, that would be the case, you know. So had we done this ex- like running an experiment like this one, like this one. Before computer vision engineers and scientists would have known of adversarial images, would have probably not worked out because we wouldn't know what adversarial robustness is, you know, this specific type of noise and perturbation. So, yeah.
0: yeah so, um, what I was saying was, would it help, like the, you, uh, you spoke about uh, sensitivity mm-hmm. for your foveation, yeah. foveated vision mm-hmm. versus your peripheral? Would it yeah. affect your decision making skills too? your what kind of vision are you perceiving for an object because from what i understood if it's your peripheral vision uh Mm -hmm. it might be attached uh, there might be some low saliency attached to an object whereas Mm -hmm. it's if you're continuously like fixating on that object so do you believe there are some decision making aspects too to uh, yeah there
2: probably is and i think something that we that we've juggled a lot uh, or struggled a lot with is um that in computer vision, I think there's still, the psychologists have this this difference a bit more clear, but in computer vision, there's still this um, almost, uh, I don't know what what the word is, but they think it's synonyms. They think attention is a synonym with peripheral vision and attention can be overt or covert. So overt attention would be like to actually, you know, you guys know, know, psychology, cognition, overt attention would be like making the eye movement the fixation, you know, And, and covert attention would be like an example for those who are listening. Maybe our engineers are not aware, you know, it's like would be if you're driving, you're staring ahead and somehow you kind of want to make sure without moving your eyes that there's a person in the side of the road. You can't really take your eyes off the street, but somehow you kind of have to quote unquote attend in the periphery. So I think that's something that in our work we haven't explored yet, but I think it's probably really important too to see how the interaction of like the type of processing in the periphery compounds with attention. You know, I think that would be that would be really cool. Yeah.
1: So um there's also been like a lot of like research, like one which started with YARBUS mm-hmm. about how um context right, 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 can yeah. YARBUS about how context can actually affect um where you're looking at. So do you think peripheral vision and context could also be some aspects which could be explored?
2: Uh yeah, I mean I think the like the holy grail of all this would be like a machine that made eye movements and that had like in real time that had a saliency map and that also had like has simulated peripheral processing that is texture based because so far we've made machines that can do this, but the peripheral processing is actually like adaptive Gaussian blur. Just because the texture stuff is well first it's kind of contrived to have a model where you're directly going to manipulate the information on the image versus maybe changing the internal processing of the deep net to make it texture based. And it's not just like uh, the Gay-Ross argument of the, the networks are texture bias because that's global texture bias. This is like local texture bias for each one of these receptive fields that change as a function of eccentricity. So that complicates things a bit, but, um, but I don't know, I think I think doing something like that would be cool. I don't know if I answered the question actually, I feel like I diverged a bit from the Jarvis part, uh, but, but, but I know that context and peripheral vision do play hand in hand. In fact, there's a friend of mine uh, who's also from India? He, I, I think he went to IASC and he did a lot of work on before starting his postdoc. Maybe you should talk to him as well, Pramod RT. Um, he's at, at MIT and he's a postdoc right now. And he was at the Indian Institute of Science um, with, uh, oh, why am I, I blanking? Uh, S.P. Uh, Arun, S.P. Arun. And, um, and maybe you guys know him, I don't know. And he did a project that had to do with uh, showing that in a machine, if you somehow simulated the blur, the rate of blur in the periphery, you reduced the false positive rate of detecting an object that wasn't there. So that was kind of cool too, because it wasn't going in the adverse sailor route, but it was going in a supportive idea of you could like quote unquote see better if you have this loss of information that kind of goes against the idea of keep as much information as possible, right? So, yeah.
0: So apart from this, do you keep certain uh, like mental frameworks or guidelines mm-hmm. where you, when you want to do a translation of computer vision work to like human vision? Is there some like alerts you keep like, okay, this is something mm. in perception that I cannot uh, take into account, that I have yeah. not taken into account while doing computer vision like research? Do, are you consciously aware of like human biases or something where, why do you do computer vision or is it mm-hmm. like isolated? Yeah,
2: I, yeah, 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 no, I, I do, but I, I think kind of going back to the engineering example, sometimes even if I'm aware of that, I'll, it's not like I pretend it doesn't exist, but I, I still won't let that interrupt the idea that I want to try to explore. So for example, with the stuff that has to do with like like the the metamer the metamer example in, in in this ICLR paper and others like attention will be a factor in this too right like eventually you'll get observers that will somehow try to for better or worse always attend to the stimuli on the left or the right or, or or whatever or just become better at this too you know so um, I think those are limitations to the experiments that we still always like you know kind of. A caveat, you know, we're not controlling for attention. We're trying to minimize it because like stimuli is only just like 100 milliseconds not like two seconds. But um, but I think that's important, you know, to at least be aware of all these potential, you know, limitations and factors. Uh, but on the flip side, I still think that if someone has a great, interesting idea that is worth exploring, you shouldn't be like... Uh, that it, this usually happens a lot in psychology. It's like, you want to make a model of V2, but you're like, but you know, V2 is getting input from V1. So if I don't fully understand V1, then should I even go for V2, you know? And I'm like, I don't know, like you never know what happens. Um, it, fun example, with uh, I re- there's a recent paper that just came out a couple of weeks ago that I worked on with a student. And that, that previous paper, by the way, the, the Metamer one was with Anne Harrington at MIT. Um, uh, we did a great job in, in leading the project. This other paper I'm about to talk about, which is with William Berrios, we Trained a transformer, uh, an adversary-trained transformer, and found that the uh, it had the greatest explainable variance for A or V four in the brain score competition and in all brain score submissions. And we don't even know what happens in V four, like William or I, or I think the neuroscience community doesn't fully understand that yet. I think they think it has to do with shape. Sure, it receives input from V two, some maybe a bit. I think from V one. Like, I don't even know. We don't even understand our model fully, but that's kind of the, I think that's the puzzling thing. You know, it's like, we didn't even have to understand or do, I'm sure that there's people who actually came up and thought with the principal model of V1, V2 and maybe V4, and yet the output of the model was not that high. So I think this gives us a chance to kind of reverse engineer and say, okay, what did we do right? Or what did we do wrong before in other cases that it didn't work out? Or what did the other groups do wrong that maybe there is something in V1 and V2 that they thought you know, they put in the model, but they actually didn't. And maybe there's something new to explore, you know? So yeah, I, I, again, I think I, I did a huge tangent, but it also, I want to go back to the whole thing of, you know, just not limiting um, yourself to what's already known in the community. And sometimes it's okay to try wacky stuff. And, and, and sometimes you'll just, it, it was like by accident that like, there was no even uh, reward for getting the highest V4 score. <laughs> and we just happened to get that, you know? So that was kind of cool too yeah so the moral of the story is YOLO
0: just <laughs> sometimes trust your gut feeling and yeah go with yes your intuition yeah
2: yeah yeah go with the intuition yeah 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 i think that that's that's it you know
0: yeah. yeah so just following along the same theme how how would you suggest people from varying like different backgrounds who would not be like yeah. traditionally uh, interested in something who would not be traditionally tailored or something like yeah. cognitive science or something. Yeah. How would you encourage them or to make them understand that there's no not such a high barrier for them to mm. enter this interdisciplinary field? Like for like even the starting of the interview, you gave the example of you took something which you were not comp- like traditionally very yeah. comfortable, which was dynamical neuroscience, but yeah. you still jumped into that. So how would it help someone who is currently an undergrad to take that leap of faith? Mm-hmm. And try out something like cognitive science, which is not in their domain, but is yeah. kind of related. Like, if it would help yeah helpful if you could give your example mm-hmm. of how, like, specifically in vision, you went from like yeah. a traditionally in, like, a hardcore engineer. Yeah, 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 to, like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: Neuro. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a great point, and I think it's like actually people like I don't know, if maybe you all both of you had like a background in engineering, that eventually like switched. It's a garner doing a a loud noise, but sorry if you guys hear that, but, um, but, um,
0: Computer science engineering background and she has a psychology background.
2: Oh, okay. Okay. Cool. 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 So I think, I think really what, what, what happened with me is, uh, I thought the, the difficult part was going to be, um, can you just give me one second? Maybe they're drilling upstairs. Hopefully you guys can hear that. And apologies if you guys do. Okay. Um, I'd say that for me, the the hard part had to do with I wasn't really good at reading. I didn't really like reading so much um, when I was in, in in high school or in, or in college. So um, uh, I feel like I, there was a lot of stuff that I had to to read to get to like a point where I felt more comfortable with this. Let's see, I, I feel like the gardener is maybe so. Um, so yeah, I feel like the hard part for me had to do with uh, reading a lot and catching up with information because I thought that that was just you know overwhelming. Um, the math was not that difficult. The math and the quantitative barrier was not that um, difficult, which, is, which was a good thing. And I had like a good background in math and engineering um, before, but I did feel like maybe I was gonna be an outsider because my ideas were not gonna be that well received and maybe, it's going to be like, why is this engineer here? And, and there's a bunch of psychologists who did have that background. And I, I remember I almost failed my neuroanatomy class. And my professor was like, he was like, well, if you fail, like you fail, you know, but you got to, I remember I got like three apps in my first quizzes, because I was really bad at memorizing even diagrams of the brain and stuff like that. And I still am, <laughs> But uh, but it gave me some sort of background. I think at the end of the day, really, it's not about the transition. I think it's more about, You know, what do you want to get out of it? And I think in my end, it was like, what I want to get out of this is that I want to learn something that I just, otherwise there's no, there's no other way to learn what I want to learn if I don't do the switch. Because in my mind, I said, okay, I have my engineering background. I could get a PhD in computer vision, for example, or deep learning or data science, but I already know how the future is going to look like in six years. Like I already have the background. I could potentially even teach this myself, you know? So... It would be hard, but it would be still manageable, which is essentially what I did at the end. But uh, for something like psychology and neuroscience, I'm like, okay, I read these papers about experiments with humans or monkeys or different techniques, or what is like a physics? How do you even run an experiment? Think about it. What is the IRB, you know? And, and I think that's something that unless you don't physically like do that, then reading the paper just becomes this highly abstract concept that you, there's just no way around it. So um, I think my piece of advice would be to go for it, but to have in mind what the ultimate goal is. So for me, my ultimate goal was, I really would just wanna understand visual intelligence, whether it's in a human or a machine or I don't know, insects or animals, whatever. And, and I think the best way to do that would have been um, just to kind of get go a bit out of my comfort zone too. I think too many people, I see this in, in developing countries like Peru um, where they're just too stuck in their comfort zone they're like there's no way I'll, I'll be able to keep up if, if I switch to another field you know and 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 it's all almost strange too because like in Peru like there is no such thing as like graduate school like quote-unquote more most universities is like maybe a master's no one gets a PhD in Peru uh sometimes they, people look at me strangely they expect that if I have a PhD I should be like 50 or something and it's mm-hmm. like no you know it's like and, and it's not like of course like you have to be determined and you have to be you know relatively smart and all that but it's not like you have to be this you know magnanimous genius to get a phd that i think that there's this misconception there's it's not even like an option Many people just aren't even aware of it so most people don't even know you can get paid to get a phd so um uh, from what i know the, the situation in india seems like it's better like there are universities that have doctoral degrees which is great um but maybe for other people who are hearing this that don't know much about how it was like for me in Peru. It seemed like this huge risk and gamble, you know, of like, why would you even uh, And job wise too, right? Like job wise in engineering. I feel like there was this clear path of data science and you make a bunch of money and psychology, you know, oh, well, what's, you know, what could you get out of that besides a faculty job, which is, I think, also very great, but um. I don't know. I think really you just have to believe that you want to do it and you, and you want to do it for the right reasons, right? You want to do it because you're actually intellectually like just curious about it. And because you kind of know that if you keep going through through the same path of engineering, you're just not going to get the intellectual or any or personal gratification or reward, um, no matter how hard you try and you just have to try something new, I think.
1: Yeah. So like, um, just a little bit more upon this question. There's this huge dilemma that most students face is like, how do Mm -hmm. you formulate your research interests? Like, even if you've like decided you want to study in an interdisciplinary field like cognitive science, even within that field, how do you like formulate like, what is the big question that you want to answer? So what do you think about that? Like, how could one just go ahead with
0: that? Oh, do,
2: do
1: you yeah that's like a lot- before
0: yeah. the process or is it something do you think is concoct like concocted during the process
2: yeah it's definitely during the process i think it's like this feedback loop and i think many people get stuck at this because many people think that they, they're starting either their master's or their phd and then they're like oh i'm not sure what my research project is and then they're just really confused and sometimes their advisor doesn't know and, and that's also okay you know that's part of the process but i think the thing that's most important is to to keep moving and to try different things out. I think one of the best things you can do is to um, essentially take a a gamble with different projects and know what you like and know what you don't like. Because knowing what you don't like is also very important. Like you really wanna know why, When I tried this project, project they like, why didn't I like it? It was like, um, did I like it because I, for example, didn't like my advisor, maybe didn't like my team. Maybe I didn't like to program or code as much as I thought I did, you know. Um, maybe there's another reason why something that has to do with um, the, the scope of the project. Maybe it's too math-based, and most of the times people like really, really don't know, um, and they or they have this idealized version of why they want to do something, and then they start doing it. They're like that happened with me with graphics. Thought graphics would be super cool, and I started doing it. I was like, this is just this is just too difficult for me. Like all the math is like way too over my head, and all the work that I put into it is not even that rewarding at the end. So um, versus Vision, just I don't know, kind of felt easier. I really love the community too in Vision. In Vision, everyone was really welcoming. Everyone was really uh, open about stuff. Everyone was uh, wanted to help you if you were stuck, you know. So so that was that was that was pretty cool. Um, yeah. So you just have to kind of start and, and try to do stuff. So yeah.
0: So I feel like we. So yeah, I feel like we covered a lot of things. We went from how we got you got started in cognition, then we spoke a few things about vision, and we got some beautiful tips about how to proceed in this direction.
1: So um, without taking much of your time, uh, we would like to thank you for taking the time out of your schedule and talking to us.
0: And uh, a fun ritual we want to start in our podcast series is sure, like, sure, yeah. Uh, we would like the guests to end the conversation with their favorite quote related to their field or just research in like any interest in general. So any quote which you like, and just, we can end it on that.
2: Any quote that I like.
0: Yeah. yeah related to um, field or any interest in general. But you are um, specific to Arturo.
2: Specific to me. Yeah. I don't know what, the, I don't know what the best one is. Uh, I'm not sure i think some i i can't i can't really think of a quote right now speaking of the noise in the background i i think i think i think i think the one of the best ones is you know like the like the i'm not a adidas fan or the nike fan but you know they always cancel the noise and just keep going you know i think that's probably the most important thing because um i think most of the time and this happens a lot in developing countries you know you're gonna have Sometimes the teachers against you, you know, the family against the friends, you know, it, it's very difficult to just move forward. And, um, and I think that's the most important thing to just have a goal and keep going no matter what happens. And, um, and, and that's very difficult. And sometimes you almost feel like you're like doing this all alone, you know, and, and, and you need someone else to do it. But you just have to go for it, keep going and, and always believe in yourself I think believing in yourself is the most important thing. Because if you don't believe in yourself, you don't really believe you can get at the end of the goal. Um, no matter how hard you try, Like you're not going to make it. You really have to be like your own fan and, and, and cheerleader. So there's this quote by, by Che Guevara that's, uh, I don't know if people like quoting the Che Guevara, but it's a uh, hasta la victoria siempre in Spanish, which means uh, towards victory always. And I think that's, uh, that's a very motivating quote. Um, so, yeah, hopefully, you know, you guys enjoyed this time too. So did I. I think this, this was yeah. great. I really enjoyed this.
0: Mm-hmm. On that very optimistic and motivating note, signing off. Chetan.
1: Rakshita. Bye. Bye.